Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. And now from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN, The Axe Files with your host, David Axelrod. No one's had a closer view of this Republican field of candidates for president of the United States than Lindsey Graham, because until a few months ago, he was one of them. Uh, Now he's scratching his head watching this very strange race for president on the Republican side and wondering where it's all going to lead. No one has more pungent, candid, and uh, sometimes hilarious insights into this process than Lindsey Graham, as you can hear in this conversation we had the other day in Washington. We're here with Senator Lindsey Graham in the Russell Building. So if you hear noise in the background, it's authentic corridor rumbling yes. from the Russell Building. Mostly lobbyists yeah, <laughs> wanting something. Banging on your door. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, or my staff asleep, one of the two. <laughs> so, Senator, you, you uh, one thing that caught my eye was that you, uh, your folks owned a tavern. <laughs> and, and the reason it caught a my bar. eye, my, we, I grew up in, I didn't grow up, but I, I grew up politically in Chicago. Right. And there was a time when everybody in the city council was either a, a bar owner or a mortician. That's where you meet people. Exactly. One way or the other, you're going to go through both. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. In fact, there was one alderman in Chicago who used to run under his slogan every time he ran was, he'll be the last to let you down. You know, he was the mortician. Absolutely. Yeah. So what'd you learn from, uh, what, what'd you learn hanging around taverns? You had a pool, You played, <laughs> there was pool there. And- okay, so we had a bar, and downstairs we had a pool room, three tables. And on the other side of the bar, a partition, we had a liquor store. And we lived in the back. And that was until I got in high school. What did I learn? You have to be funny enough to keep them coming back. The food has to be good enough to want them to come back, and you got to be tough enough not to have your bar taken over. So it sounds uh, <clears throat> sounds like good preparation for politics. It's or? the ultimate. You know, when you think about it, it's retail politics at its best. There are a lot of bars. Why my bar? And you got to be like family. I grew up, you know, in, in a small town, textile, a textile town, small community with two bars. You either went to our bar or the one across the railroad. Yeah. Yeah, and when did you, when did you decide that you that politics was something you wanted to pursue? I just remember when President Kennedy was assassinated that my grandmother cried, and I never seen my grandmother cry before. And just the effect that a politician can have on somebody, and that stuck with me as a young kid. I went to law school and I started thinking about public office, uh, probably in high school, just mm-hmm. kind of as a joke. I'd make a joke in my class, uh, you know, I'm going to be governor one day, right before I got kicked out of the class by the teacher. And, you know, the bottom line is those seeds uh, were planted probably early on. But my dad was the funniest guy I've ever met. 
my mom worked tirelessly. She kind of kept all the books, and my dad did the grocery shopping. The roles were reversed in terms of the sort of the way the family business was run. But growing up in a small textile town where you get to you you see life uh, up close and personal. We no African American really <clears throat> drank in the in the bar until I was in high school. So I saw the the South evolve. I never went to um, uh, school with an African American child. I was in sixth grade. And you look back and think, all this has happened in my lifetime. Do you um, uh, you mentioned that you come from come from a textile town? Yeah. Um, I, I don't want to jump ahead in the narrative here because I want to talk to you a little bit about coming to Washington when you did and in uh, and and how it's changed since then. Right. But um, uh, but. In this last South Carolina primary, uh, you saw a big vote for Donald Trump. Yeah. And, uh, you know, everybody was saying, well, there are all these evangelicals. How come he's getting these votes? But the, and I said, well, but there are also people who saw the textile mills go away, who've seen the economy change in ways that really disadvantage them. How big is that playing in these elections, and particularly in the South? Let's look at the evangelical vote. When you think of evangelical Christian, Donald Trump doesn't pop to my mind. <laughs> okay, yes. how can an evangelical Christian vote for Donald Trump? I think you he, know you, you must not be familiar with two Corinthians. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I know three Corinthians well. Uh, the so it Bible, sounds like a joke, doesn't it? Two Corinthians yeah. walked into yeah. a tavern. And, yeah. Dad Cruz actually did a good job with that. So it's not so much what you love as what you hate. There are a lot of evangelical Christians hate the way the country's going. They hate the fact that there's political correctness around practicing the faith of being a Christian, that the world is falling apart, uh, that the government's getting too big, and they feel under siege. So he's not appealing to what how evangelicals about, well, well, love, but what in, they in the fear. In interest of uh, candor here, how about the kind of changing face of the country? How about the diversity of the country and and, and all of that? Well— True. There are a lot of people who can't come to grips with it. By 2050, a majority of Americans will be non-Caucasian, that this, the 1950s world is passing by. This is nothing unique. If you look into the history of our country, there's always been nativism. There's always been demagoguery. There's always been blaming somebody else for your woes. Mr. Trump is not doing anything new. He's just doing it in our time. So what do people see in Trump? The anti-Obama. They see a guy who's going to be strong who's going to stand up to the bullies, a guy that's uh, been successful and he's going to spread his success to you, uh, a guy who is not can't be bought like other politicians. Those who like Trump see in him a strong man that's an antidote to maybe Obama and Lindsey Graham. And I see in Donald Trump a demagogue, someone who's playing on people's fears, not their hopes, someone who sells policy in short sound bites with no chance of achieving the goal, somebody who scapegoats others, uh, and uh, that's what I see. So you see in Trump what you want to see. So I'm thinking not the keynote speaker at the convention this Probably year? Probably going to let that one pass me by. <laughs> Our party's about to fall apart. Uh, it's happened to your party, but uh, here's, here's the problem. The people who write the checks, the donors, and the chamber of commerce types, they want a party that can solve a problem. Our friends in the Tea Party in two camps. There's sort of a, a uh, libertarian Tea Party. And there's a really very conservative Tea Party. Immigration is our undoing. If I had to explain to you the demise of the Republican Party that you see unfolding is over the issue of immigration. About 40% in our 
of our party want them all to be deported without exception. Anything short of that's amnesty, and the rest are trying to find different ways of solving this hard problem. And Trump took that 40%, and he's really milked it. Uh, there's two things underlying his campaign. If you elect me, I'm going to get rid of them who are taking your job and corrupting our way of life, and I'm going to make us safe again and secure again. And if you, get, if you elect me, I'm going to make sure the Chinese and other people – foreign entities don't take your job away from you unfairly powerful stuff xenophobia race baiting and with a just a tinge of religious bigotry we're going to keep all those muslims out there's something going on out there so we're going to ban all muslims until we figure it out well what's going on out there donald's a war and if you understand Anything about the war, we need to partner with people in the faith to win the war. All people in the faith are not the same, and the radical Islamists represent a small portion of Islam as a whole, but you're seeing 65 75% of the people in the Republican primary world supporting a temporary ban on Muslims. Now, what you're saying is exactly what George W. Bush said. It's what Barack Obama says. It's what most of the, gen- the generals you talk to uh, the soldiers say. Yeah, who the, fight the war. The, the soldiers, but it's... But it's not, as you say, it's a, not necessarily a widely held view among uh, at well, least it, that it, segment of the Republican Party. Even the country as a whole, I can understand the idea that uh, the religion represents a threat to us because here's one thing is true. All radical Islamists are Muslims. <laughs> but what you learn by traveling and interacting with the military and being involved in trying to understand the war, that this is a war between a small percentage of the faith and the rest. Most people in Iraq and Afghanistan don't want to turn their daughters over to ISIL. And the way I know that is I've been there enough to find that out. And it is a religious war, and I'm willing to take sides with the King of Jordan, the president of Egypt. Uh, Now, just turning back to Trump for a second, uh, there was this episode this past weekend where he kind of stumbled over the David Duke uh, question in the KKK. You said that he... I don't he, think he stumbled at all. Yeah, that's what I want to ask you. Do you think that was an intentional Yeah, because? I think Friday he condemned David Duke in kind of an offhanded way. <clears throat> My guess is that somebody said, hey, you don't need to go down that road, and he's trying to hedge his bets. I don't think he supports the KKK. I don't think he's a racist, but I think he's playing a political game. He's playing, Do you think he's exploiting race? Yeah, definitely. And effectively? So far. And what do you— So far in the primary, but at the end it would be the demise of Donald Trump and the Republican Party if we don't watch it. Well, you say if we don't watch it, but as we sit here, we're talking— Today is a, is a Super Tuesday, a lot of states in the South. He looks poised to have a big— You, you can day. lose an election, but you can't lose your soul. We can survive losing an election, but we can't lose the soul in the heart of the Republican Party. The fact that we lose an election, we can overcome— we can't condone what he's doing. We've got to show that the substantial part of the Republican Party, 65%, 70%, don't buy into this. Yeah, yeah you, as you sit here, you're a smart, smart <laughs> politician. You'd have, to, you'd have to say he's got a better chance than anybody sure. else of being the nominee. If you took his name out of the mix, you would say he's going to be the nominee, and I think he probably will. But it's a plurality contest. Right. And the, our failure has been to – we haven't been able to consolidate. If you could consolidate one-on-one, I think Trump would have lost a long time ago. But in a plurality contest, that 30 35 percent is just baked in the cake. Do you see any consolidation coming? No. Nah, nah, everybody's got their own theory. I think John Kasich's probably the most electable Republican. 
<clears throat> he's going to hang around to Ohio. Marco's going to hang around to Florida, and it's probably too late. Yeah, you know, I, I watch this, and I watch uh, Kasich, and I think, well, you know what? Uh, I and a lot of other people who uh, are not necessarily core Republicans would say, well, that that's sensible. And then I think to myself, boy, this guy has no chance of winning the Republican nomination because his appeal is, is, is broad. Well— but maybe that's not being fair to the Republican Party. No, I, I don't know how to explain it, David, other than this. How do you sell conservative conservatism to a country that's more diverse? I think you can. I think President Obama's given us an opening here. I think African-American families have been left behind as much as anybody else. I think what Jeb Bush did with school choice in Florida would help the country as a whole. I think the economic woes that we face as a nation are felt even harder among people of color and young people. It's hard to get out of your mother's basement because you can't find a job. My challenge is to try to create a party that can connect with young people who believe that climate change is real. Let's just talk about the solution. You're not going to – I'm never going to vote for somebody that would deport my grandmother. So if I'm an Hispanic person, and most of these families are intermixed between legal and illegal, this idea we're going to deport 11 million illegal immigrants, including their American-born children, is never going to sell with the Hispanic community because it seems harsh and unfair. Drug dealers, yes. Grandmothers, no. So if the party's pushing this solution – then we're going to have a hard time convincing Hispanic voters that we're on their side and we understand their well, That's world. kind of reflected in the polling, Trump's numbers among Hispanics. Are... It said 80% with growth potential. So, so <laughs> That's negative, we, not positive. Yeah. yeah. What did we learn in 2012 from the postmortem? The Hispanics said, you know, this idea you're going to deport everybody just seems unfair and <clears throat> it's more about our last name than it is broken borders. Young people feel like we're intolerant. I'm pro-life as it comes, but I have an exception for rape and incest. I think most Americans do. So the bottom line is that there's an opening for conservatism. But Donald Trump has shut the door, I think, in 2016 because what he's offering is not conservatism. It's demagoguery. So having said all that, uh, what do you do? What do you do if he's the nominee <laughs> of the party? One of your colleagues said the other day yeah, uh, that he, he wouldn't support him. Well, ask me after Sass. the convention. Let, let's see what happens at the convention. You know, Hillary Clinton should be – is eminently beatable. I mean, she's the most – You know her pretty well. Yeah, right? You I, were I, colleagues. Yeah, yeah. I, I well, like her as a person. But, you know, she – Did you like her as a colleague? Yeah, absolutely. But Why? She, what was it – what about her? She – you know, she was somebody I could work with. We did TRICARE changes to make sure the Garden Reserve could be eligible for TRICARE. But she, the fact that I like her and the fact we found common ground doesn't change the, the big elephant in the room. She's not going to do anything substantially different, and somebody better do something substantially different with our debt and our foreign policy. So we've got a huge opportunity here to change course as a party in a country, and Donald Trump doesn't represent a sustainable course. He represents a very narrow lane um, when we need to be, you know, have multiple lanes. You never had a chance to actually confront him on a debate stage. I would have given anything to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, how frustrating was that? Very frustrating. I think what we've done is locked in celebrity candidates if you do this in the future. I'm from a small state, never run before. If you're going to use national polling as a criteria to be heard to begin with, it's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because people who are the best known 
are going to get a certain amount of votes. The ideologue's always going to do well. You know, Bernie's campaign and Ted Cruz's campaign, they're the keeper of the flame. You know, they're, they're the purest of the pure on whatever issues the left and the right like. There's always going to be a market for an ideologically driven candidate. There's always going to be a market for celebrity. So that's where we're headed if we use these criteria in the future. We need to take a quick break. We'll be right back with our conversation with Senator Lindsey Graham. Miss any of the Republican or Democratic debates? Listen to all of the CNN debates and recap specials in full at iTunes.com slash debates or CNN.com slash podcast. So you didn't get on that debate stage. Do you regret having run? No, I'm glad I ran. Uh, I think I drove a foreign policy debate that was long overdue. I talked about ground troops before Paris. After Paris, everybody sort of got the idea this thing is not going well. I don't believe President Obama's game plan is to destroy ISIL as much as it is to contain it and pass it along to the next president. And there is no ground component to this war that I think will be successful. And you need one to win. You're not going to take Raqqa back with the current construct. You're going to have to have ground forces, mostly from the region, but with our help to be successful, or they're coming Isn't that part of the issue is that— America can't really be the point of the spear and that some of the some of the partners in the region have to take up this fight. Totally agree with that. The partners in the region should provide the bulk of the forces, but we have capabilities they don't. The outcome matters to us. Is this a war indifferent to us in terms of an outcome? It's not. What happens over there matters here. It's a religious war. Let's take sides. Two things are going on in the Mideast at the same time. <clears throat> Young people are demanding more social justice. They're not going to go back to the Gaddafi, Saddam, Mubarak way of doing business. So I'm with the young people, and there's a religious war going on inside the faith itself between radicals and people who could live in peace with me but still be different. I'm with the people who could live in peace with me and, with me and still be different. We've got to take sides in this big titanic uh, uh, shift in the Mideast, and we're not. The, the question is really how do, you, how, do, um, how do these societies organize <clears throat> themselves in the midst of – uh, sectarian, like Are you talking sectarian about us or the Mideast? Well, we're both actually. <laughs> we'll get back to us in a second. But just to close out that discussion, um, you know, you have this was the issue with Iraq. You've got a very divided society, and making it cohere politically, you know, absent the uh, the the dictator, uh, has proven very very difficult. The answer is in our own history. I just told you a few minutes ago that the first time I ever went to school with an African-American child was when I was in the sixth grade. The KKK has been marginalized because people in the South over time became educated and understood these guys are nuts. They became marginalized because people in the region where they came from rejected them. Over time, and it's going to be a generational struggle, every time you can build a small schoolhouse to give a young girl a chance to understand the Quran and charter on destiny is a big blow to radical Islam. This is a generational struggle. The outcome is certain. Most people don't want to go back to the 11th century. The tribal differences, the sectarian differences are real. They're real here at home, but institutional checks and balances don't exist, like the rule of law, like a fair economy, an economy where everybody can participate. To build those structures, we saw what happened after Germany and Japan were wiped out. That commitment that we made to Germany and Japan to build tolerant societies uh, from the ashes of intolerance is what we have to do in the Mideast. I wish I could think of an easier way to get there. I don't know how to do it. Yeah, though it seems like the uh, sectarian uh, strife in the Middle East uh, 
creates an impediment that transcends uh, what what we faced in, a, the in, a, in a vanquished religion. Germany and in a vanquished But uh, go back into Japan. the history of the Christian religion where there's just hundred-year wars between Catholics and Protestants. What happens is that economic prosperity and education over time put all this in a box. And what you have missing in the Mideast is you had artificial governance created after the uh, end of World War One and World War Two. Now, people are going back to, here's what I think. I think theocracies in Iran are not going to stand the test of time. I think that sectarian governments back by us because they're friendly to us but oppressive to the people won't stand the test of time. There will be a place in the Mideast for a religious person, but there's also going to be a place in the Mideast for somebody who, you know, who thinks differently. That day is coming, and we should help expedite that day. Let me return to our own sectarian struggle. Yeah. You've watched uh, your colleague uh, Marco Rubio in the last four— you're, you're a funny guy. He's kind of turned into a bit of a lounge act in the last four days going after Trump. How effective do you think that has been? When you do it late, it looks like you're desperate. When you're consistent, it looks like it's part of who you are. So I think Marco's punching back. Here's the problem with Trump. Nobody's really hit him where he's the weakest, and that's his policies. I'd given anything to be on the debate stage that I'm not going to stop until you tell me how we deport 11 million people, how much it cost, who told you you could deport an American, you know, a child of an illegal immigrant who was born here in the United States. Tell me who that lawyer was because I want to talk to them. But isn't that exactly what the folks who are supporting him uh, react to? They don't want to be told that we can't do I'm what not they going think is after their sense. votes. I'm trying to expose him. Understood. But with oh, you're saying in the face of all these other yes. folks who haven't yet You decided. become the person that people who think Trump's full of it will gravitate to. Because mm-hmm. the way you prove that Trump's full of it is you deconstruct his arguments, that you don't let him up off the mat. You just keep going at him and going at him, and you make him mad. You think that's what Hillary will do if she's the nominee and he's the nominee? I think all Hillary needs to do is get out of the way. Mm-hmm. Hillary Clinton's going to win because of demographics. The question for presidential elections is: it, Are these demographic elections now? Are they the candidates? How much does a candidate matter? I would argue that 2012 was the first demographic election. That Romney, through self-deportation and some other things that he said, made it hard to grow in a demographic sense. So if you believe that we have to grow demographically among Hispanics, particularly 18 to 35-year-old women, we're doing absolutely the wrong thing to grow demographically. There's 61% of the white vote is what Romney obtained last time. We're not going to do much better than that. We're a party with two, two theories here. Ted Cruz says the reason we lose is because uh, John McCain, uh, Mitt Romney, and Bob Dole are rhinos. And 50 million evangelicals are sitting out elections because— Republicans in name on Right. Republicans in name are sitting out elections because we don't have a conservative person to rally them to our cause. I say, Ted, you're full of it in a respectful way, and I know you're very smart. That's a theory that meets Ted's needs. I say the reason we're losing, Ted, is because among the fastest-growing demographic— the way we've handled the immigration debate has alienated a group of voters that should be ours. I would say to young people in general, our unwillingness to accept climate change as a real scientific phenomenon and some of the intolerance that we have around social issues has built a wall between us and young people who could be there for us if we, if we chose to be. So I think what we've got is a demographic problem. 
as Republicans. And how do you win the White House if you don't get 40 percent of the Hispanic vote? And tell me how Donald Trump does better with Hispanics than Mitt Romney, because we've gone from self-deportation to forced deportation. If uh, President Obama were to name Lindsey Graham to the Supreme Court, (laughs) uh, do you think that the Senate should not vote on that? Well, I wouldn't vote for me. I love the court enough not to put me on it. All right, let, let's choose a different person. But so, but is there is there no nominee that no, should be seated on this court? And no, what is the what's the wait. historical precedent for? And I'm going to take this back to the election in a second. But yeah, um, I think the history's on our side. I think we've had one in 1888. You had a president of one party in the White House and uh, uh, party opposite the president in the Senate that confirms somebody in election year. There's nothing unusual. Just listen to what Joe and Schumer – here's the one thing I know for sure, David. If Schumer were in my spot, <laughs> he would be doing what I'm doing. Uh-huh. Because of the politics. Because yeah, well, yeah, we're, too, we're in an election year. you got a lame duck president. We're months away. The nominees are virtually chosen now, so let's just wait and let the next president pick. Here's what I will tell Republicans. We all love let the people decide. What happens if she wins? What happens if she wins and she sends over a liberal? And you said a couple of minutes ago you thought if it's her and Trump, she will win. Yeah, and I'm telling my Republican colleagues, watch what you say today. Because if she wins, the people have spoken. If she chooses somebody liberal, which she will, who's qualified, which I'm certain they will be, I'm going to vote for them. What if the president chooses someone who you voted for before and uh, who is seen as a pretty mainstream choice? In this this, – before the next election – I'm not going to – one, the Democrats changed the rules. I was in the Gang of 14. I fought my own party when it came time to change the rules. The nuclear option was first entertained when Bush appointees were being filibustered. I said, let's don't do that. Let's save it for extraordinary circumstances. Then all of a sudden in 2013, the Democrats changed the rules, stacked the appellate court and the district court. Uh, you can't ask for fairness. Pay, requiring a simple uh, making. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. You, it's hard to ask judicial for fairness. Picks non- yeah, yeah. It ain't happening. We're gonna let the next president pick. But here's what I'll tell Hillary, Hillary and Trump. I will give great deference to the president in terms of judicial picks if they're qualified. What about? Uh, let me just. You're just a th- political question, theoretical political question. What if Hillary wins? The president appoints someone. He's clearly going to appoint someone. It's uh, someone who you guys have re- uh, confirmed before, seen as a mainstream pick. What are the what are the chances that some action is taken in the lame duck? Uh, zero. That's not fair to the next president. Really, it's not fair to the this. I want people to think about. Even voting. if they think they're going to get a more uh, more liberal choice than the See, next. I've had people say, "Well, what about she wins?" He sends over somebody more conservative than she would pick. One, he's not going to do that. Why would he do that to her? That's not fair to her. Here's what I want people to think about. When you vote for president, vote for a person that's going to pick at least one Supreme Court nominee, maybe more. Think long and hard about what that matters to you. When you vote for president, make sure you're picking somebody who's commander-in-chief qualified. We're at war. We've been in a state of war for the last 14 years. Pick somebody who understands the war, has got a plan to win it, that's got the temperament, judgment to actually lead a nation at war and take care of those who are doing the fighting. I, I think I know the answer to this, but do you think Trump is that person? No. And is, is Hillary qualified to be commander-in-chief? I think she's qualified to be commander-in-chief in terms of her background and experience. I just wouldn't pick her to be commander-in-chief because I think she's going to double down on a strategy that's not working. At the end of the day, what disqualifies Trump to me is it is his temperament and his lack of – if you knew anything about this war, you would not suggest 
as a nation, let's ban an entire faith from coming into the country, understanding this is a religious war. So um, I care deeply about those who serve. I don't want Hillary Clinton to be president. I think anybody on our side except Trump could win this election. And time will tell as to what. I don't know what. Do you see any conceivable uh, circumstance under which Trump could would get elected president? I guess if you had enough white Democrats do what they did in past times, just rebel against the party. Uh, but I just, unless she gets indicted, maybe. You know, something, it'd have to be, in my view. Now, take what I say with a grain of salt, because I ran and didn't do nearly as well as Trump. This this is just my observation. He would point that out. Yeah, and he (laughs) should. But here's the question. Am I right about why we're losing? There's a reason. Well, you guys did an autopsy after the last election that said exactly what you're saying, which is we need greater outreach to uh, Hispanics, we need greater outreach to minorities. Generally, we need greater outreach to young people. We need greater outreach to women. You got it. So that's what we found when we looked at our election results. <clears throat> Tell me how what Trump is doing achieves that goal. Whatever you think about Megyn Kelly, she's not a bimbo. Uh, whatever you think about illegal immigration, most illegal immigrants are not rapists and drug dealers. Whatever you think about the fear that comes from the war and terror, People in the faith are not all the same. The bottom line here is that every problem we had in 2012, Donald Trump's taken a can of gasoline and thrown on top of it. And to expect a different outcome is foolish. I hope I'm here with you saying, God, was I wrong? I had no idea what I was talking about. Trump won. America's great again. (laughs) I hope I'm... Do you think that... um uh, there's been this thing floating around this this town that maybe we could stop Trump and have a a, a, bro, a so-called brokered convention. Not really. No, that's not fair to him. It's not fair to those. I what mean, would happen if that were attempted? He would leave, and he'd have a right to leave. If he gets, say, two-thirds— And his voters of, as well. Yeah, if he got two-thirds of what he needs, which I think he's well on his way to doing, for us to steal it from him is not going to help the party. The only, you can lose an election— We've lost elections before, but what I'm trying to do is focus on the day after we lose. Can we rebuild this party? Can we create a form of conservatism that's enticing to young people and people of color? I think we can, and I think that's the only hope for the Republican Party, quite frankly, one of the big hopes of the country. The challenge is how do you create that kind of party and hold your base? Uh, Because you described— As always, you're dead right about the politics. The donor class in the Democratic Party, the people who write the checks and the people who put up the signs and make the phone calls, have the same agenda. They're socially and physically liberal. There's not a disconnect. There's a disconnect between the Chamber of Commerce and the Tea Party. There's about governing and about solving the immigration problem. Those who are not willing to shut down the government to repeal Obamacare are the problem. Even though I think that's a dumb tactic, I want to repeal Obamacare. There's a difference between those who fund the party and the rank and file, uh, and we're having a hard time. We're a series of clubs, not a party. The Democratic Party is still fairly cohesive. Bernie people don't hate Hillary. When you look at the South Carolina primary polling results, everybody had a 40% negative. It's not that we like one guy better than the other. We actually hate the other people. We're going to take a short break for another uh, message, and then I want to come back and talk to you about 
where where the party was in 94 when you got here and where it is today. Thanks for listening to The Axe Files, now a part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more podcasts covering politics like Jake Tapper on State of the Union and international news like Fareed Zakaria, GPS, and Amanpour, go to cnn.com slash podcast or just search CNN in your favorite app. We're back with Senator Lindsey Graham. You came here amid <laughs> what was then called a revolution. Contract with the America baby. Right, exactly. That was the that was that was the era. Uh, that's the uh, start over with. There's one more, I think. We're uh, time for votes. I think it's just attack on the Capitol. Don't worry about it. Okay. Okay. All right. An angry citizenry (laughs) taking up arms. So um, you you came here with the contract of America. You guys were the revolutionaries. Right. Uh, Now you mentioned Lindsey Graham to the sort of base (laughs) Republican, and they say he's an establishment sellout Republican. I'm I'm the elite. You know what I love about America? You can grow up in the back of a liquor store and become elite. <clears throat> That's the only in America can you do that. Here's you probably what I, don't even have the bank account to show for it. I, I certainly don't, but I'm a very happy man, very blessed in many ways. I asked uh, Dick Army and Newt Gingrich the same question in 94. Did they win? Did we win or did they lose? Newt said they lost. Army said we won. you got to understand what happened. In 94, the contract with America was an organizing document that allowed Republicans to be for something. But the main reason we won is because people were tired of Clinton. You know, there's a real backlash against the president. He didn't get off to mm-hmm. a good start. So that's how we came to power. And we eventually lost power as we got in a fight among ourselves. You know, uh, you can talk about impeachment, whatever you want to talk about. So <clears throat> if we won in 2016, it would mainly be because people were sort of wanting to go it to a new direction. A third term of Obama didn't seem that appealing. So how do you lose in 2016 when everything is there to suggest that you should win? Every historical indicator suggests a Republican Except win. Except demographics. Except demographics. So what's the big difference between 1994 and 2016? Demographics. If you had the same demographic overlay in 1980 that you do today, Ronald Reagan will lost by six points. I feel like a one-man band. I think a lot of people get it, but I can't stress it enough. You can't get 270 electoral votes unless you do better with people of color and younger people. The bottom line is conservatism is not a liability. It's an asset. But what we're selling is not conservatism. What we're trying to sell for conservatism, really, at the end of the day, what Trump's trying to sell his fear, not conservatism. And so uh, it sounds like you're now thinking that there's an apocalypse looming and that your mission is going to be to try and imagine life after that apocalypse and rebuild this party. Yeah, I'm thinking fair? January 2017. What can you do to rebuild a party that I think is going to get a pretty sound whipping? I think senators can survive Trump. I think House members can survive Trump because people are basically fair. I don't think there's going to be lumping us all under one umbrella if we separate ourselves. And that means that we're going to have to show the American people the problems you see in Trump, we also see. The problems you have with Trump being president, we get why you feel that way. 
if we can make the case that we get why you feel uneasy with this guy and at the same time show that what Hillary Clinton's not a viable alternative, then we got a chance to rebuild the party. But I think it's important that we convince people that we get not only the flaws in Hillary Clinton, but the flaws in Donald Trump. As we finish up, I, I want to get back to this establishment, Lindsey Graham, the establishment. Yeah. One of the, the reasons that that gets hung on you is that you've shown a willingness to work with Democrats on yeah, selected yeah, issues. I think so. This notion of compromise <clears throat> as treason. And you see it you know, on both sides, but it, it, it really plagues your side right now because there was this thing that was sold to the American people or to Republicans that – we're going to get elected and we're going to stop the president from doing Obamacare. We're going right. to stop the president from from uh, affecting his agenda. And we're not going to cooperate on on any issue. But that's really not the way the system works. Well, no, I don't think that's the way the system was designed. Well, it was designed by no. the founding fathers. Everybody loves the Constitution. But. So in 1994, um, we get elected because of 40 years of Democratic control kind of got old. So in 1998, 99, we did impeachment. I was impeachment boy. I, I could have played that gig forever. Then I started to realize that I want this to be my contribution to the country. It's the guy that can you know, get up in the crowd and yell the loudest about what we're against. So I made a conscious decision, trying to take the opportunity that people in South Carolina gave me to do things that somebody needs to do. Somebody's got to fix immigration. Tell me how you do it without any Democratic input. If you don't do something like Simpson Bowles, how do we ever return, you know, turn the entitlement problem around? Uh, I think climate change is real. I just don't think cap and trade is the way to solve it. So my profile now at home is that I will take care of South Carolina, that I'm really good on the military, but I'll try to work across the aisle. And here's my bet, that there's a strong majority still in my party who understands that we have to work with the other side to achieve the common purpose as a nation that we all desire. We're all going to suffer from the debt. ISIL would kill us all. So you got to defend the nation, and it's going to take both parties working together, and you got to right the, the ship of state in terms of the debt. I don't know how you do that without working with the but other side. But that's the bet you made when you ran, and you didn't get a whole lot of take-up on it. Well, I got 57% in a six-way primary. When in I, your own state? Yes. yes. Now, when I ran for president, I was in a crowded field, and I don't think I could ever be heard. Here's mm -hmm. what I will always wonder. If I'd got on the main stage and I'd thrown the BS flag to Trump in an effective way, tell me how you do that, Donald, without Democrat support. Tell me how you get a bill through the United States Senate that deports all 11 million illegal immigrants, deports their American-born children, and makes Mexico pay for it. Tell me how you do that, because I'm not going to vote for it. So tell me how you get Democrats to vote for it. Well, we're going to have to – it's going to be like uh, those video games where, uh, you know, Michael Jordan plays Oscar Robertson because we'll never get a chance to know. We'll never know. But in January 2017, let's have this conversation again. Yeah. Thanks, Senator. Thanks, Good Senator. to be with you. Yes, sir. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu.